High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. In our last episode, we began to discuss how the murder of Dorothy Stratton, the Playboy playmate turned actress, who was dating Peter Bogdanovich at the time of her killing, impacted Peter's daughters and his ex-wife, Polly Platt. This would be the beginning of a period in which Polly's own personal life would become increasingly troubled. And then, in the middle of one of the darkest times imaginable, she'd start working on the film that would result in her only Oscar nomination— a film infused with Polly's personality and struggles as a mother. Based on a novel written by a man who once loved Polly and directed by the man who would occupy the center of Polly's professional life for the next decade. Join us, won't you, for part seven of Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. In the immediate aftermath of Dorothy Stratton's death, Polly was desperately worried about the impact of the murder on her two daughters, who had gotten to know Dorothy as their father's girlfriend and their fellow co-star in Peter's film, 
They all laughed. Sashi and Antonia had been staying at their father's Bel Air mansion for the summer when Dorothy was murdered by her estranged husband. After the murder, Sashi and Antonia remained at Peter's house, which had begun to fill with friends and hangers-on. The children had often been left to their own devices at their dad's house. If they said they were bored, he'd tell them to find a book to read. The only other kids around were Brian Wilson's daughters, Carney and Wendy, who lived down the street. But now, Holly's daughters were left to their own devices in a situation that was chaotic and scary. Polly tried to convince her daughters to leave their father's house before the summer was over, but she was unsuccessful. As Antonia remembers... Yeah, she really wanted us to come home. She really wa- And I think if it was me and I was the mother, I would have wanted us to come home because it wasn't an environment that was... It was, there was, it was very heavy. There was a lot of people visiting, and my dad... I, I, I guess... People were keeping me away from I don't really remember that. I just remember my dad was like a mess. And um, I didn't want to leave because I wanted to be there for my dad. But I think in my mom's mind, she was like, my daughter's 12 years old. How can she be there for Peter? I remember we wanted to stay and have Sashi's 10th birthday in September, September 16th. So we wanted to stay and celebrate the birthday with my dad. Was your dad by September in any shape to celebrate a birthday? Kinda. I mean, I think he was putting on a good face by that point, but no, Mm. he wasn't, no. I mean. That was just a month later. Yeah, it was just a month later. That September, the children returned from Peter's house forever changed. Antonia was an angry, difficult 12-year-old and was unmanageable. Sashi was sweet, but shell-shocked. They were not the little girls who left for Peter's mansion early that summer. I sat them down and tried to talk to them about the murder, but Antonia would hear nothing from me. They went to school as usual in the fall, but everything had changed. Tony was wonderful, but even he could not manage the angry Antonia. There were scenes between Antonia and myself when I hit her. But Antonia soon developed enough strength so that she could fight me back. To complicate matters, Peter would soon invite Dorothy Stratton's mother and her sister, Louise, who was about Antonia's age, to live with him. And years later, when she was of age, Peter and Louise would marry. None of this was easy for Polly to wrap her mind around, and the fallout of it all was still very much in progress when Polly's personal life suffered another major blow. In early 1981, Big Tony went off on a location shoot, leaving Polly and the kids back in L.A. When he came back, he introduced Polly to his new secretary. One Saturday morning, Polly was biking around the marina and passed the boat she and Tony kept docked there. The interior of the boat was strung with clothesline, and hanging to dry on the line were bras and panties and shirts, which I recognized as belonging to Tony's secretary. I couldn't understand why she was on the boat without Big Tony telling me about it. Suddenly, I realized that they were having an affair. At home, Polly confronted Tony, and he didn't deny her accusations. 
I realized then and there that I would never understand men and their incessant need to seduce women. This event carries with it my deepest regrets. He was a wonderful man, and he brought great joy into our lives, but he couldn't control his libido. I had to surmise that he didn't love me. What else could it be? His illness? The need to live life deeply and in the fullest, knowing you have a death sentence over your head? I tried to understand, but I couldn't. I didn't want to sleep with him anymore. We separated. The children were devastated. I was devastated, and Tony didn't take it that well either. I felt like the meanest mom in the world, and my children, who were too young to understand, hated me for it. With Tony gone, Polly went back to work as a production designer. Producer Jerry Bruckheimer, who was then relatively unknown and a couple of years away from defining hits like Flashdance and Beverly Hills Cop, hired Polly to design Gary Marshall's feature directorial debut, a comedy called Young Doctors in Love. On that set, the first film she had worked on since splitting with her third husband in the wake of the murder of her second husband's girlfriend, Polly started to feel that she was losing her center. She began a destructive affair with an on-set electrician, an ex-Marine sniper who bragged about his kills in Vietnam and then stalked her. She then began dating a Star is Born director, Frank Pearson, who saw how much Polly was drinking and suggested she go see his psychiatrist, a Westwood-based psychoanalyst named Vadim. Right away, Polly opened up to Vadim about all she felt was behind her depression and her drinking problem. Peter was fundamental to my sickness. I had never grieved properly, having to devote myself to the children and pretending the whole thing was not happening. I missed my artistic collaboration with Peter and was essentially very lonely and deeply sad about his loss. And now I was furious about his neglecting my daughter's and his for Dorothy's sister. I said a lot about my husband Tony and his awful illness and his defection with that nice secretary. I was able to see that my life was unmanageable that I had plenty to be upset and suicidal about. The doctor listened patiently to my thoughts, and I began to feel he cared, understood, and that there was something to be said for confession. I definitely got better. I began to look forward to my sessions with him. Polly's relationship with her shrink crossed a line at some point, to the confusion and frustration of her daughters. As Antonia recalls... She was coming home late from dailies. A lot. And I remember her saying, you know, I need to get sober because there's, there's been so much that's happened with my kids, with Dorothy, and it was just a mess. She told me she was in therapy with a psychiatrist. Then I found out that she was actually not at dailies every night. She was seeing her therapist. And then she was telling me she had a crush on her therapist. And then the next thing I know, she was dating him. They were having an affair. And I was like, but you can't do that. You're not, he's not supposed to do that. And then he starts coming around as the boyfriend. He was intense and he drank a shit ton. And, um, so, and then she started drinking and I thought, well, wait a minute. She told me originally that she'd gone to him to get, to help maintain sobriety. So I hated him because I hated her when she, her, she drank. Yeah, that was rough. This is Sashi Bogdanovich. 
I think it was just that they were fighting all the time. You know, it wasn't like she seemed happy in the beginning. It's a little hard for me to necessarily separate what she told me and, you know, my what I experienced, but I know that I hated him. While she was seeing Vadim, Polly's relationship with teenage Antonia became increasingly combative. At one point, after a fight on a family vacation in Hawaii, Antonia snatched her plane ticket in the middle of the night and flew home early, alone. What happened next is an example of why, in her memoir, Polly frequently referred to her teenage daughter as unmanageable. And you're 15, 16? Uh, I'm 15. And then I was home for like a week without any parents, and I stole my mother's car and drove it out of town, and then the radiator cracked because one of the guys I was with didn't put the cap back on. I had to sell the futon, this is crazy, to get the car towed back. So it was $200 to do that, and I sold the futon to get the car back and put it in the driveway as if it had never been driven. So then she comes back and she's like, where's the futon? And I was like, I don't know. She's like, a futon doesn't just get up and walk away. My poor mother. And I was like, well, I don't know. And then like a few weeks later, they tried to start the Honda and the the radiator was cracked. They had to sell the car. I was, was horrible. Polly's romance with her psychoanalyst carried on for several years. But there seemed to be something keeping the relationship from getting to the next level. They bought a house together, which they never moved into. Polly understood there were problems, but she was determined to make the relationship work. We were drinking all the time, and it's hard to explain why I kept hoping I was wrong and why I held on to him. I was afraid that I would get mentally ill again, like my mother. I wanted it all to work. Perhaps it was all in my imagination. Polly was paranoid, but that didn't mean there wasn't something wrong. One night, when she and Vadim were supposed to see each other, she called him repeatedly, but his line was always busy. I finally drove down to his house, and he was having dinner there with a very attractive woman. I stood in the glass doorway and watched him reach for her with his hand in a decidedly sexual gesture. He saw me and stood up. I ran to my car and left. He followed me and I went home and locked the door. He pounded on my door so hard I thought it would fall in. I stood in my window and watched him. He pissed on my lawn and left. This relationship, which Polly entered into in an attempt to heal herself from the grief caused by the end of her previous marriages, not to mention the murder which had crashed into her family like a train felt to me like the emotional low point of Polly's story, at least up to the point where she became fatally ill. At a total loss as to how to move past all the wreckage in her life, she put both her mental health and her personal life in the hands of a doctor with clear ethical issues who was never able to be fully honest with her. When I read the passages she wrote about this doctor... My stomach just ties up in knots, and I feel so sick and sorry that her life took this detour. This is Antonia Bogdanovich. So yeah, I think that was a really sad time for my mom, because it was another disappointing love story gone wrong. I mean, my mom didn't have the best—she didn't choose the best men, I would say, in her life. (laughs) Always. (laughs) At least not for her. 
Ironically, it was while Polly Platt was in this self-effacing relationship that she also achieved her greatest success in Hollywood. At least, if you're going by the metrics with which Hollywood itself measures success. It was during this time that she received her only Oscar nomination for her work on a film that swept the major prizes that year, was a major commercial smash, and which also, in the opinions of Polly's daughters and other people who knew her, may have been inspired by Polly herself. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In our last episode, we talked a bit about the movies that came after Peter Bogdanovich's hot streak, the three consecutive flops that followed his creative break with Polly Platt. The first of those movies, Daisy Miller, co-starred James McMurtry, the son of the writer of the novel on which the last picture show had been based. Because Larry McMurtry was a single father and his son was only 11, Larry was present for the entirety of the Daisy Miller shoot. Sashi and Antonia were staying with their father for the summer, and the movie was built around Sybil Shepherd. So Daisy Miller became a bizarre sort of last picture show reunion. The film even co-starred two more of that film's actresses, Eileen Brennan and Cloris Leachman. But one person was missing, Polly Platt. It was during these months in Europe, while in close proximity to Polly's daughters and ex-husband, that McMurtry began writing the novel 
Terms of Endearment, which was published in 1975 and adapted into a movie released in 1983. In the film of Terms of Endearment, Shirley MacLaine plays Aurora Greenaway, a Houston widow who works hard to maintain a facade of order and propriety, who has a difficult relationship with her daughter, Emma, played by Deborah Winger. We meet Emma as the kind of eye-rolling teenager who sneaks a joint in her bedroom with her mom in the next room. We follow these two women as Aurora, who is surrounded by male friends who are in love with her, develops a romance with her next-door neighbor, a roguish former astronaut played by Jack Nicholson. Meanwhile, Emma enters into an unhappy marriage, becomes a frustrated mother, has an affair, and then faces a diagnosis of terminal cancer. In the film, Emma is mostly older than Antonia was when the movie was made, and the novel was written when Polly's daughters were much younger. And still, many people I spoke to told me that they believed the character of Aurora in the book bore a strong resemblance to Polly, and that the similarities between Polly and Antonia's relationship felt even more pronounced in the movie. When he's been asked about the relationship between his characters and real people in his life, including when he was asked by me, McMurtry has been coy. But just as the residents of Archer City, Texas, saw themselves in the last picture show, Polly and her daughters saw themselves in terms of endearment. First the novel, and then in the film adaptation. As Sashi recalls... Well, what we were told, what I was told from my mom, was that that was based on her. I think it flattered her. I mean, she told me he told her that. Aurora is loosely based on my mom and sort of these gentleman callers. And my mom did have some men hanging out, hanging around um, that she just wasn't really in love with. And, but she liked them, and they were her friends. When people who knew Polly talk about terms of endearment... They sometimes freely mix the names of the characters, the names of Polly and her daughters, and the names of actors who appeared in the film, such as Deborah Winger. Antonia and my mother had a very, um, very similar relationship later to Deborah and Aurora. So I always was sort of enthralled with the movie because maybe Larry predicted it. And um, the way Deborah was handling Antonia and I was a lot like how my mom handled us. She would just lose it, just because most women do. <laughs> of Larry McMurtry, Antonia says... I mean, he knew me, and I was not exactly an easy kid even before I was a teenager, and me and my mom were definitely... We had a an interesting dynamic where it, there, was, there was a lot of tension, but there was a lot of sense of humor sprinkled on that and I my mom was really tough but I was too so I didn't necessarily listen to her and I wasn't afraid of her and everybody else was intimidated by her and I wasn't I do see a lot of similarities when I watch the movie I do think based on what I've seen that Shirley MacLaine's character is very close to my mother Polly had wanted to adapt Terms of Endearment for the screen herself but she hadn't been able to find an approach to the novel that she thought would work. After Pretty Baby, she had been offered a writing deal at Paramount, which owned the rights to McMurtry's book. It was a difficult time. 
They wanted me to do a rock and roll musical out of their film White Christmas. I wrote a screenplay, but it wasn't very good. White Christmas was the least awful of the assignments that were offered to me. Every day I would go to work and I'd have two six-packs, which I would take with me. And that may have had something to do with the quality of the screenplay. I was definitely drinking a lot. I was drinking during the daytime. I brought my beer. I wasn't ashamed of it. I didn't try to hide it. Looking back on it now, I can't believe that I behaved that way. But I was descending into severe alcoholism. I used Orson Welles as an inspiration for this quixotic, brilliant record producer. And I know there's some good scenes in it. I know that. But it didn't get made. The three-year contract, it came to naught. Polly was in her office at Paramount one day when James L. Brooks came to see her. By that point, Brooks had already co-created The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Taxi. He had written and produced the excellent Love After Divorce dramedy film Starting Over, but he had not yet directed a feature film. He introduced himself to me and explained to me that he was interested in the book Terms of Endearment. Jim Brooks was very intent on doing this job himself, and I wanted to be helpful since I didn't have a clue. And I arranged a meeting between Jim and Larry McMurtry. So Larry and Jim met, and I heard nothing more about Terms of Endearment. Or, if I did, I was too drunk to remember. But I do remember Jim Brooks. Time passed. Brooks spent years struggling to get Terms of Endearment off the ground. And then Polly agreed to meet with Brooks again. By this point, Polly's writing contract with Paramount had run its course, and she had gone back to work as a production designer on movies like The Man with Two Brains. Brooks showed her his latest budget for Terms of Endearment, as well as his latest script for the movie. Polly thought the budget was totally unrealistic. She thought the script was brilliant. And yet... Polly didn't really want the job Brooks was offering as production designer on Terms of Endearment. She was consumed with her kids and her relationship with her shrink. She was going to therapy five times a week and didn't want to go off on location. But as Polly recalled, Brooks wouldn't take no for an answer. He took out his checkbook and asked me how much I wanted to do the picture. He would write a check right then. I was amazed that he would make such a gesture and laughed at him, but I was definitely impressed with his obvious talent and suddenly liked him and wanted to work with him on the movie. There is this sadness that I always feel when I accept a job on a movie. It means leaving my family for an extended period of time, and making a movie takes up all of my energy. I just don't care about anything else. But I was truly impressed with the script and was beginning to change my impression of James L. Brooks. He seemed to me to be more and more brilliant. Brooks pursued Polly fervently because, as a writer-director coming from the world of television, he needed a collaborator who would teach him how to think cinematically. Penny Finkelman Cox was a producer on Terms of Endearment, as well as two other Brooks films on which Polly would later work. And she explained that Polly's reputation for making a director's early movies look great preceded her. I think she was very well known even then for being 
the heart and the soul behind the movies she'd done, which were pretty amazing, you know, with Bogdanovich. In Polly, Brooks found a partner in tenacity, as Rachel Abramowitz explains. I, I mean, it was sort of an aesthetic she developed either with Jim Brooks or in conjunction, or they both had it independently, but which is sort of like going to the mat creatively, like don't stop at 90%, do the extra 10%, be maniacal about the extra 10%. I mean, she just had the ability to just hone in on whatever was trying to be expressed. And she just, she went 10 miles past servicing it. This is Lisa Maria Rodano, who later worked with Polly and Jim as a writer. You know, I think that as women, as we try and emerge and try and be more than society has allowed us to be, the notion of that kind of a role isn't so attractive. But it was one of her genius roles. She became the greatest vice president anyone could ever have. Let's just say that. Um, And she did that for a lot of really great filmmakers, and their films wouldn't be great without that kind of energy behind them. I know she did that for Jim, and I know that Jim loved her. Because Terms of Endearment was a very low-budget production, it was all hands on deck. Polly wasn't given an office, so she'd set up shop in the hallway outside Brooks's office. As she almost always did, Polly pushed through the usual boundaries of a production designer to get involved in other aspects of the production. And this was one movie where there were a lot of issues with crossed boundaries. Time had no meaning for Jim. The hallways were filled with backed-up actors. We would stay late, order a big jug of margaritas and mull over the casting along with some Chinese food. Kim Basinger was slated to play the very important role of Deborah Winger's best friend in terms, and she was perfect for the part. I loved her for it. Over margaritas, I watched Deborah Winger talk Jim out of casting her and was most disappointed. I felt Jim was under Deborah's influence too much. I felt that Deborah didn't want any competition from the immensely talented Basinger. But to make up for her terrible interference in the casting of the women in terms, Winger somehow put Jack Nicholson's name into the hat. She knew him well, bragged that she was in Jack's special Rolodex, a sexual connotation. Jim loved the idea. Jack was already a huge star, and he was more than perfect for the part. Polly's dig at Deborah Winger for bragging that her name was in Nicholson's special Rolodex is hardly the most negative comment about the actress in Polly's writing. Some of Polly's commentary about Winger is echoed in Shirley MacLaine's book, My Lucky Stars. Although Polly and Shirley wrote about the power struggle that ensued on the set of Terms of Endearment from different perspectives. MacLaine was in the middle of the scrum, and Polly was trying to keep the chaos controlled so that it could feed into the film rather than destroy it. By the time they actually got on location in Houston, Polly had totally warmed to Brooks and thought they were in the midst of a mutually fruitful collaboration. But she worried that her influence was waning as Brooks's passionate fondness for Winger grew. There was no question of an affair. Jim was devoted to his wife, Holly, who was very involved and most helpful and creative. But I felt Deborah had far too much control over Jim. 
One night in Houston, we had been drinking after casting, and Jim and I went out with Deborah to a nice restaurant where we all resumed drinking. And Deborah apparently took issue with something I said to her, and she emptied her glass of red wine all over my head. I retaliated by pouring a pitcher of water over hers. What an evening. I've often wondered what Jim was thinking during all this. Deborah would try on her costumes in her hotel room and wanted Jim to see all of them. He would never go to her room without me, as Deborah was definitely flirting with him. I think she was trying to seduce him. She was trying on a pair of short shorts and modeling them for Jim when she went down on her knees in front of him, telling him in her little girl voice that she and Shirley had different acting styles and agitating for him to replace her. Deborah almost had Jim convinced he was so under her spell. The bad blood between Winger and McLean has become part of the movie's legacy, and it was first made public before the movie was even in theaters. Way back in February 1983, Wigger was accused in gossip columns of launching tirades, which were said to be, quote, sparked with language that's making even the male crew members blush. A full year later, after the movie was already a certified hit and nominated for multiple Oscars, People magazine reported that one of its lead actresses, quote, reportedly slugged the other. A dozen years later, McLean told a reporter, No blows were struck, but it was worse than you've heard. I didn't tell all of it in my book, and nobody has, really, because nobody would believe it. As late as last year, McLean was still speaking cryptically about the making of terms, calling it absolutely the toughest shoot I ever had and adding that when she ran into Winger at a restaurant in the recent past, quote, she basically apologized. There was, what should I say, an acknowledgement of the past in a realistic way. What did McLean write in her book? According to Shirley, Winger's process involved pranks and antics, verging on performance art designed to unsettle her co-star. McLean, a product of the old-school studio system, was befuddled by this, but she felt that Brooks loved it. As Penny Finkelman Cox recalls, It was conflicting, you know, and, and Deborah and Shirley were always competing with each other. I don't know, Jim does like conflict. He does like it. <laughs> because he thinks it stretches people. So what about the People magazine item, claiming that one of the actresses slugged the other? By several accounts, there was an incident, but it's much weirder than a simple slugging. And there's a question as to which actress got hurt. In her memoir, Polly wrote about an incident that took place in a screening room. According to Polly, in appreciation of how perfectly awkward Deborah Winger looked in one of her costumes, Shirley reached over to her co-star to affectionately grab her arm. But it was dark in the screening room, and as Polly explained, Apparently, she missed Deborah's arm and got her left breast instead. Deborah recoiled, shouted, You punched my breast! 
and punched Shirley in the side of her face. We were all paralyzed in the silence of the screening room. The lights came up and no one said anything. Then finally, Jim said to me, You know you're losing touch with reality when things like this happen and you feel they're perfectly normal. McLean's book includes a different but similar anecdote. Also said in a screening room, when the cast and crew were assembled to watch dailies. Winger sat next to McLean and, as Shirley wrote, Becoming more and more agitated and gleeful over what she saw, she threw her arm over my chest and pulled hard on my right breast. I shrieked in pain, rammed her with my elbow in the stomach, and said, Get the hell away from me. She retreated like a wounded, manic child who has provoked discipline, but is terribly hurt after receiving it. She bolted from me with aggressive tears. I felt terrible. I wished I hadn't done it. But at least I was finally fighting down in the muck and the mire. Jim could no longer accuse me of being above it all. McLean would write that she was banned from dailies after that, and that soon after, she threatened to walk off the movie, but Brooks convinced her to stay. In the end, it wasn't Shirley McLean who left. It was Polly. We started shooting, and all went well for the first few weeks, aside from the fact that we were over budget before principal photography started. After several more weeks of shooting, I had a drink with Jim at the hotel bar, and he told me that, for budget reasons, I had to go. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Penny Finkelman Cox recalled that with the desperate budget situation, it wasn't unusual that Polly was sent home. The sets had been built. Her work as a production designer was done. What was unusual was that she was brought back. Well, Deborah Winger was a challenge. (laughs) She was a very difficult, brilliant but difficult actress. She had a lot of problems that have been discussed in other places. She and Shirley sure didn't like each other very much. And Polly was someone that, everyone respected as a, an artiste, not, you know, not a producer in the sense, but as a real artistic visionary. So we needed help in the last few scenes. And then what happened in New York was that, <laughs> I don't know, you may have heard this or not, Deborah got a pimple and it became 
the world came crashing down. <laughs> we called Polly in to try and help us get Deborah to come to the set to finish the movie. It was a volatile time. And, you know, the irony, of course, is that it was a volatile time, and yet the dailies were making everybody crazy. They were so good. When Polly had left the location shoot, she had made herself useful back in L.A. by watching the assemblies of footage that the editing team were putting together. She did this at Brooks's request, she said, because he was afraid to look at the assemblies himself. Polly did as asked, and though the rough cut was shaping up to be very long, she thought it was brilliant. She called Brooks and told him so, which gave him confidence. And as Lisa Maria Rodano notes, Brooks came to rely on Polly's counsel. It was like a marriage. It really was. I mean, there just were things that I, I don't think he would move forward on if he couldn't speak to her and ask her what she thought and ask her what she saw. Many people I talked to explained that, at least at first, Polly and James L. Brooks seemed to fit together like puzzle pieces because she could do what he couldn't, whether that was understanding the visual potential of a set or making choices with decisiveness. As Larry McMurtry explains, Polly was brilliant at her craft, smart and decisive, and so she butted heads with most directors. One of the reasons she worked so well with James Brooks was that he at times had a difficult time making decisions. Polly was very decisive, a plus when in production on a film. Terms of Endearment was nominated for 10 Oscars, and one of those nominations was for Polly's production design. This was a great honor for Polly, her one chance to have her name mentioned among the greatest in her field and industry. But as her daughter Sashi points out, it didn't exactly work out that way. And they said Molly Platt when they announced her name. <laughs> the gaffe was made by then 72-year-old former musical star Eleanor Powell. Terms of endearment. Art direction by Molly Platt and Harold Michelson. Oh, no. oh she laughed. <laughs> and she's like, well, if I had won, I would have corrected them. <laughs> Polly lost out to the team from Fanny and Alexander, but she did get to hear her name said correctly before the end of the night. Terms won in five of the night's top categories. Jack Nicholson won Best Supporting Actor. Shirley MacLaine won for Best Actress and, in her speech, called out the turbulent brilliance of Deborah Winger. The Oscars for Best Screenplay, Best Picture, and Best Director were given to James L. Brooks. It was in accepting the prize for directing, for doing the job of the quote-unquote auteur, that Brooks shared credit where it was due. This was, uh, in, in the truest sense of the word, enormously collaborative film. Uh, Andre Barkoviak's talent is on every frame. Richard Marks was a dream in a cutting room. A friend of mine named Dave Davis worked with me from beginning to end. Holly Platt was made an extraordinary contribution. Christy Zia's costume. Polly didn't get to take the stage that night, but the nomination alone was validation from an industry that just about a dozen years earlier had made her jump through hoops to join a guild, 
writing her off as nothing but a wife of. And being closely associated with the most winningest film of the year would be nothing but a boon for Polly's career. The nomination puzzled me because I felt I had done much better work on other films, but I was happy nevertheless. Shows you how much it matters when a film is very popular. Jim deserved his Academy Awards. He really earned them. Jim invited me to every party for Terms of Endearment and spoke so highly of me that I was embarrassed. I just drank champagne, and one memorable night spilled my entire glass all over Mrs. Michael Eisner. Good show, as they say. I wanted to give Jim a present for my nomination for an Academy Award. I had been an avid reader of Matt Greening's cartoon series in the LA Weekly, and he did a cartoon series called Success and Failure in Hollywood. And I called him up and I asked if I could buy the original. He came over with his then-manager wife, and I bought the big original and had it framed and gave it to Jim. He loved it. Later, Jim was developing a TV series for Tracy Ullman, and when the skits didn't reach the proper length, he went to Matt to do some animated cartoons to fill in the length. Matt didn't want to do his rabbits, and came up with the ideas that resulted in The Simpsons. Polly had misremembered the title of the comic strip that had caught her eye. The actual piece that Polly bought and gave to Brooks was called The Los Angeles Way of Death, and it first appeared in Greening's Life in Hell strip in 1982. It features the signature Life in Hell rabbit man, whose bug eyes and teeth resemble the crude features of The Simpsons, facing a number of manners of demise, from drugs to war. In the final two boxes, the image is the same. The terrified character hunches over a work desk. The first of these identical boxes is labeled failure. The last is labeled success. This explains why Polly had misremembered the title as Success and Failure in Hollywood. It had stuck in her head because she knew as well as anyone that in the movie industry, success and failure can not only look the same, but the former is just as likely as the latter to be the cause of a man's demise. In an oral history of The Simpsons, Polly would say that while she had suggested to Brooks that it would be great to do a special on the characters Matt had already drawn, I never envisioned anything like The Simpsons. In the same history, Tracy Ullman show writer Ken Esten says, quote, The idea of ever incorporating Matt into the Tracy Ullman show was entirely my idea. It did not come from Polly. But many of those close to Polly believe that since it was she who introduced Brooks to Greening's work, and since she used her influence to champion the cartoonist around the office, The Simpsons may never have existed if not for Polly Platt. As Rachel Abramowitz explains... I feel like when Polly does stuff like that, it's a little bit, like... It's not as, like, casual as, like... She really did feel, rightly or wrongly, that she introduced Jim to Matt Groening. If you give someone a book, it's like, I really like this book, I really like this book, you should really think about this book. Like, so technically, you've just given the person the book, but you're sort of yanking them, and, hey, why don't you have a meeting? You know what I mean? I just feel like it's a little bit more with an intention to it. What's undeniable 
is that Polly did give James L. Brooks an original Matt Greening drawing before Greening was ever contacted by Brooks, and later, as an employee of Brooks's Gracie Films, Polly was involved in aspects of The Simpsons' total world domination. As Sashi Bogdanovich recalls, And then, you know, The Simpsons was so big, and then she flew all over South America to promote the translation and um, syndication of Simpsons. So I was thinking that she was a part of it, and she wasn't. I mean, she didn't get any money for it, but from what I understand, from what my mom told me, is that she never thought, and she thought this was the curse of women. It didn't occur to her agent or to herself to set up a deal where we're like, oh, this is going to be huge. Let's get some points. You know, she was like, I worked for Gracie Films. It was just part of my job. You know, that's what she thought. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Polly was about to enter a new phase of her career as a real, credited producer. By now, nearly a decade and a half had passed since the end of her marriage to Peter Bogdanovich. But that relationship and its breakup had become stuck in the craw of the Hollywood imagination. Have you ever seen that movie, Irreconcilable Differences? So you know it's sort of loosely based on, well, me and Antonia together, and then the nanny is like very much like, and then the writing team and all of that, you know. Uh, but my parents both hated that movie. <laughs> they were both like, oh. Irreconcilable Differences, written by Nancy Myers and her then-husband Charles Shire and directed by Shire, was promoted as the movie in which Drew Barrymore, Hollywood's hottest child star after E.T., files for divorce from her parents and goes to live with her immigrant nanny. But nearly every contemporaneously published review of the movie noted the not even particularly veiled similarities between the marriage and divorce of the film's couple played by Shelley Long and Ryan O'Neill, and Polly Platt and Peter Bogdanovich. O'Neill's character is a film academic-turned-director who wears Bogdanovich-esque glasses and woos his eventual wife by talking to her about Lubitsch movies. He quotes Orson Welles, gets his first break fixing someone else's movie, and comes to rely on his wife's seemingly casual input into his scripts. They fight over credit and his arrogance. Are you just upset because I'm getting all the accolades? Yeah, well, so would you be if you did half the work and no one ever mentioned your name. Every interview I do, I I tell them, you lay down the script. Hey, pal, I did more than lay it down. You couldn't write a word without me. This is like Bing's car being stolen. It is not my fault. They're giving me all the credit. Well, maybe I don't get any credit because I'm a woman. Then he has an affair with his young blonde actress, moves into a mansion with her, and plots a risky musical around his new muse, against the advice of the industry. 
You know, when you first came to me with your Gone with the Wind musical, I thought you had something. My right hand to God. Yeah. But uh, I listened to Blake's tapes this afternoon. Was that singing? No, I don't think so. Singing is Lisa Minnelli, Barbara, even Julie Budd. That's singing. But this was like a... No, I just didn't get it. Come on. She's taking lessons. What are you worried about? What have my pictures grossed? 70, 80 million dollars? I know what I'm doing. Blake Chandler can do anything. She's the actress of her generation. Yeah, but listen to me. Blake was terrific in Gabrielle. A great marriage of an actress and a part. She didn't have to say too much. She pouted. She showed her tits. But a singing Scarlett O'Hara, she is not. You're going too far on a limb with this girl. I mean, she's got you by the balls. You don't know what you're talking about. These meta-elements are the most entertaining aspects of irreconcilable differences. But if it was your family whose most painful dynamics were being spoofed for comedy, you wouldn't find it so entertaining. When that came out, I was like, how do people even know about my parents' relationship? You know, it was like confusing to me, but everybody knew. But I didn't know they knew. People kept asking me if the child was based on me, and I felt like the whole movie was not accurate to my parents' at all. I was loosely based on them. When I watched it, there was nothing true about it. The versions of Polly and Peter, played by Shelley Long and Ryan O'Neill in Irreconcilable Differences, are cartoons based on the legends that had been printed. The writers of the film didn't meet or speak to Polly until almost a decade later. When they moderated a public conversation with Platt, about her production design career. At that event, Polly claimed, Myers and Shire privately apologized for fictionalizing her life in the movie. Polly recalled her meeting with the authors of Irreconcilable Differences as a personal triumph. What was so funny about that day, it was kind of getting even with them. I was the star of the show. Polly's desire to be the star of the show to get a taste of the spotlight she felt she had deserved for the last picture show and had been denied, had burned inside her for years. In her position working with James L. Brooks, she would collaborate on some of the movies most central to the culture of the 1980s and 90s. But as we'll see, the past had molded Polly into a person who was uniquely suited for this moment in some ways, and in other ways kept her from taking the final steps to fulfilling some of her dreams. Around the time Terms of Endearment was released, Polly spoke to a seminar at the American Film Institute and addressed the ambition that remained unfulfilled. Do I want to direct? Yes, finally. I would like to direct now. I think I've been offered to direct more times than almost any woman in this town, and I've turned it down every time. I used to say I was too short. I couldn't put my arm around the actors. I used to joke, cinematographer would be bigger than me and all that. But now, I think I could do it. In our next episode, we're going to continue to talk about the next phase of Polly's partnership with Brooks, a complicated relationship, which would go on to result in a number of classic films... And also, Polly Platt's first real chance to direct. Join us then, won't you? 
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest, Maggie Siff, who read the words of Polly Platt. Also, special thanks to Bill Sage, who performed the words of Larry McMurtry. Today's episode included excerpts from interviews with Antonia Bogdanovich, Sashi Bogdanovich, Penny Finkelman-Cox, Rachel Abramowitz, and Lisa Maria Rodano. Special thanks to them and everyone else who took the time to talk about Polly Platt with us. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Brendan Whalen is in charge of our social media and does additional research assistance. Additional research assistance and transcription by Kristen Sales and Wiley Wiggins. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Today's episode was produced by Tomiko Weatherspoon and edited and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or buy merch for our show at podswag.com slash remember. Keep up with all of our episodes by subscribing on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then won't you? Good night. Stitcher. 